All right, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back into another off-season edition of the Buffalo Beat Podcast. My name is Joe Biscaglia. Thanks, everyone, for joining us here on the program. And with me now, as always, Matthew Fairburn, our Sabres reporter and uh, obviously podcast and, and Bill's contributor to over at The Athletic. Um, Matthew has been hard at work over the last month or so getting, uh, getting acclimated to life on the hockey beat. I mean, first and foremost, how's it going, man? Like that's, that's just, it's, it seems really exciting and fun, but also kind of daunting all at once. Yeah, it's been going well. It's been fun. I've been sort of easing off parental leave as well. This was sort of overlapping Uh with, uh, wrapping up that, um, that, little time I had left um, to be home with the little guy. But it, it was interesting being at the hockey combine, being at, um, you know, starting to chat with some hockey people and, and get acclimated. You really have to wipe your brain clean of all the football faces that you know and start to download the hockey faces and some new hockey information. And um, it'll be – it's good that I can, you know, kind of get fully – into it with the off season and mm-hmm. the draft and all those things and have some of these off season events to build up to the season so that by the time hockey season and football season roll around, I'll feel pretty, pretty good about, you know, where I'm at with hockey. And, you know, I think having my eye off the ball a little bit on football won't be too detrimental after, you know, being fully engrossed in it for, for eight years, um, you know, seven of which covering the bills and, one just down the road, uh, covering one of their division rivals. So hopefully, I don't I don't lose too much of my edge on football by by being zeroed in on hockey here uh, for a while. I think those of us that have gotten to know you over all these years, either as listener or you know colleague, I don't I don't think you're you're going to take the eye off the ball too too much here. If if I know you as well as I do, um, it, and like just. Our last episode that that uh, we recorded right after um, your announcement uh, to that you were becoming the the Sabres reporter over at the Athletic, um, just just the one topic we got into right at the end of the show when we were just casually talking about the Bills, much less so than than most episodes, got into a core issue right away, even after a year <laughs> off the beat, which is the fact that the most underrated aspect to this entire Super Bowl campaign and everything that that they've got lined up for this year is the fact that they have a first-time offensive play caller that has never been an offensive coordinator before, let alone uh, let alone a play caller. I mean, he's he's smart, you know, he's got a lot of uh, accolades from his playing career and and going through the paces in in coaching circles. And, of course, I'm talking about Ken Dorsey, the the Bills' new offensive coordinator. But And he also interviewed for the job with the Bills back in 2017 before they inevitably went with Rick Dennison for that one award-winning season, we'll call it. (laughs) Um, But Dorsey is now in this primary position and charged to lead the team um, in in a direction that helps them still be this offensive dynamo that they have been over the last two, three seasons with, with Brian Dable. And I think that is going to be a lot more challenging. And I know he has he has Josh Allen and, and Stefan Diggs and, and you know they've they've tried to improve the offensive line. They've made some changes along those lines, but you know, all that said, it's still the first time doing this whole thing. And, and you know, the fact that you kind of cracked into that topic just on the cursory, I, I think, I think you're, you're going to be just fine, man. But this Dorsey thing is, is, is a real factor this season. And I think that's, uh, that was the basis that I wanted to get into for this pro this show, because it's, he's, he's someone that, I think people are just like, oh, the Bills will be fine. Uh, they've got they've got all the all these other things, but I think there's a little bit of an acclimation process that has to happen for him to, um, for them to get where they want to go with him as their play caller. 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting because while I was the tail end of my time covering the Patriots, this was the main topic of conversation as well because they lost Josh McDaniels. And the difference in New England was that Bill Belichick refuses to name an offensive coordinator and continues to keep uh, a bit of a, a veil over who will be calling plays other than, the, you know, it seemed like they were rotating a bit during their spring practices and, you know, there was different guys calling plays at different times. I think, you know, part of covering the Patriots the last year is that it was impossible to take your eye off the Bills because they were such a big part of New England's story. And now that they have this overlapping storyline, it was kind of interesting because it was a topic I was thinking about uh, over the winter after McDaniels left for Vegas and, I think a few things the Bills have working in their favor in this situation. One is that they have Josh Allen, who is comfortable as a player and as you know somebody who has a handle of the offense. How much the offense will change, how much they'll tweak it to Dorsey. Frankly, I think it would be a good thing if Ken Dorsey had the confidence and the ownership to adjust some things and work with Josh Allen to make it a little bit of their own rather than trying to be a carbon copy of Brian Dable. I think that's going to be the biggest piece of this that I'm interested to follow is what type of personality Dorsey develops now that he's in more of a leadership role and not a support role, you know, as a quarterback's coach. But as the passing game coordinator last year, getting that title, you would assume they were preparing for this eventual situation but you know it's similar to New England in a way because you know Bill Belichick has long been a defensive coach that that's his background I think he's probably got more of a strong reputation as a holistic coach as a guy that knows everything maybe more so than Sean McDermott does so perhaps that's a a nod and and the Patriot in their situation and their, you know, maybe that gives them a little bit of an, an edge that he could take over a little bit more of the role. But I think Ken Dorsey has a little bit more promise than the, the Matt Patricia, Joe judge combo. Um, also inexperienced, but experienced as head coaches. Um, it's interesting to see those two situations playing out side by side in the division, but you got to feel a lot better in Buffalo when your quarterback is already developed as opposed to New England where Mac Jones is entering year two, a pretty crucial stage of, of his development. Bill Belichick's kind of the wild card there, but Sean McDermott has to strike the right balance here of how much does he get involved? Mm-hmm. How much does he put pressure on Ken Dorsey to be... Because it did feel like at times last year Sean McDermott was trying to have some influence over the way Brian Dable called plays and set things up on offense. It was Uh, some not-so-subtle comments in post-game press conferences, especially, that that really stood out to me. Yeah, you were a lot closer to it than I was, but I was actually in one of those press conferences because it was after that, that Patriots game on Monday Night Football. And... You know, you saw some of the hints. You saw them lean on the running game a little bit more. You saw them draft a running back. Um, and so there are some factors that you could see. It's just a, an interesting time of transition for the offense. The defense should be fine. You'd, you'd probably feel more comfortable as a Bills fan if it were Leslie Frazier that got a job and they needed to adjust to a new defensive play caller because Sean McDermott could easily guide that process along. He's not as, you know, he doesn't have a reputation as an offensive mind. And I think any coach that starts to do this long enough develops more of that as they go and starts to shed the label of being a defensive coach because you have to out of necessity because things like this happen. If you're a good coach and you're a successful team, Things like this happen. You lose your offensive coordinator. You'll eventually lose a defensive coordinator. And being able to adjust and figure out, know enough about offense to pick the right guy, know enough about offense to provide the right amount of input, all of those things I think are really important. And 
I, you know, bring up the New England example because they have done this a few times where they've had to transition. They trans- transitioned away from McDaniels once before, uh, and they have done this thing where they don't name an offensive coordinator, and it's a weird dance that Belichick plays sometimes. But I think there is a certain – there's a lot of questioning of him in, in the Boston area right now and what the plan is on that side of the ball. But I do think there is a small benefit of the doubt that he does get having been in the league for so long and seen so much that there's an understanding that perhaps this guy can shape the offense in his own vision because that's what he does. And he understands football in that way. And I think Sean McDermott, this might be his first chance to show that he has some of those chops as well. He did, identify Brian Dable, who was not the most obvious of offensive coordinator candidates, given his results in the past. I know he was a Buffalo guy and was on, you know, he was in the uh, the Nick Saban rehabilitation program down there where, mm-hmm. you know, he takes his, his the, the castaways and, you know, rehabs their image on the college level. And, um, but I, I don't think that that was a, and necessarily an easy hire to make. I think they got boxed out of a few good offensive coordinator candidates when McDermott was first hired and ended up with Rick Dennison, which probably called into question his ability to identify offensive, you know, minds. But I also think that probably was more a factor of people not wanting the job as much as they might the second time around because there was going to be a young quarterback and, it was a, it was an interesting situation in 2017. There wasn't a clear path to a quarterback. There, you know, was you had to work with Tyrod Taylor and a first-time head coach in a situation that was going to be a hard one to come out looking good. And Rick Dennison did not come out looking good. But that second time around, McDermott did do a pretty good job identifying Dable, giving him the reins, letting him help uh, scout and develop a quarterback, and it all went very well. So I understand them wanting to keep things the same and, and everything. It's just a matter of how involved McDermott gets. Yeah. And with the pressure being what it is, whether he can find that right balance. Uh, it's like anything else in coaching. And it's what makes that job so difficult is every little situation you have to have your hands in it and you have to know do I not get involved? Do I get more involved? And the difference, I think, although maybe it's not a difference as I'm talking through it, last year there was, if you got upset with Dable, you had Dorsey waiting there and you could try him out in terms of play calling and whatever else. I'd say this year they have a similar setup because Joe Brady's sitting there with some play calling experience. That's true. And I think if they wanted to not fire Ken Dorsey, but pull the reins back a little bit. You have a guy that you can get more involved and maybe they're just continuing to set up that pipeline in the case that things go really well for Dorsey and he leaves and we're having the same conversation next off season. They at least have a, an experienced guy to backfill it, but it's going to continue to become a topic of conversation. When you have one of the best quarterbacks in the league, he's going to make a lot of people look really good and people are going to want to pluck from that tree and say, if you can develop Josh Allen in that way, how can we get those same results? Let's start picking from that coaching tree. So, yeah, definitely something that will be worth monitoring throughout the summer, you know, as they're going through preseason games, but really once that regular season starts and you can see the results on the field. Well, let's let's make no mistake. Anytime you add more Joe B's to the situation, I'm all for it. Um, but – you know, in this case, I think they kind of have to let Dorsey figure out who he is. And and that's that's part of the equation that I don't know is is getting enough attention. And I, I want to circle back to the McDermott point because I think this is this is ultimately where, where the conversation needs to go. But when when they hired Dable, that was a guy who has gone and as you pointed out, failed a lot in a lot of other circumstances and in those other places did not have the best quarterback play had to lean on the run a lot and and really tried to um, have the identity of the those offenses that he ran 
go with the the strength of the roster as as he smartly should have. But those results were were not necessarily ideal, and and he was still developing who he was as as a coach, as a coordinator, as a communicator, um, as a play caller, all of these different things. And he had, you know, damn near six, seven, eight years of experience doing that uh, in in one way or another. Now, flip that over to Ken Dorsey, who, you know, all, all well and good. He's got the advantage of having Josh Allen and Stefan Diggs and, um, and a, a bunch of other experienced positional coaches that have been in the job that he's in, like Joe Brady, um, like Aaron Cromer, like Rob Boris. Uh, so those those are elements that they're going to use to their advantage. But it all ultimately boils down to Dorsey. And I think the fact that he has not gone out and, and failed in a in a uh, in a similar setting before, it's not like a a damning factor by any means, but it's part of the you don't know what you don't know until you know it sort sort of idea. Like if you don't have the experience of failing in one way or another like just think about it in in anyone's career that and this is at a much higher scale don't get me wrong but like there was stuff early on in in my career that you know you you try out things um you try out writing certain things you try out um you know reporting on certain things sometimes it, it doesn't doesn't work out the way that you go you each each new situation is a learning experience and eventually, after the years pass, you get a pretty good handle on what you're what you're you're good at, what uh, what you need improvement in, what you need to constantly work at to keep yourself sharp, um, and all of these other things. Just learning things about the industry in itself that has to happen. And I know he he could do it in in a backseat role last year, but it's not the same when that pressure is involved. It. I mean, the fact that he is a first-time play caller on a Super Bowl caliber roster is perhaps one of the most pressure-packed offensive coordinator situations in the NFL this year. Because if they falter at all this season, there is not going to be the baked-in patience that we saw with um, with Brian Dable in, in his first year, uh, year and a half. And, and even thinking back, I mean, just... Just remember back to the the shows we used to record back then and those post-game shows where people were so pissed off about Brian Dable and the offense when they were dealing with the the complete tire fire that was the offensive line back in 2018 and, you know, a rookie quarterback and not great skill, like good but not great skill position players. Like, it, if there was the hint of pressure even in his first year back then, the the one that Dorsey is going to face if they start off slow this year is is going to be crazy loud and and it, you almost have to have gone through it before to know what that is in in that seat and still trying to learn how to how to do it on the job and how to call plays and and the sequencing and um what to spot uh, in in a pressure packed 30 second um situation all of that leads into like this this dude there is there is a chance where it, it could go sideways and they're hoping it's not uh, but it's it's a variable and it's one that uh I think is not getting as much attention as it probably should and I thought um Tim Graham uh did a great job getting voices from uh uh, from a lot of former offensive coordinators about Ken Dorsey. Some were like, oh, you know what? There, there'll be a learning curve, but he should be okay because he has these elements. And others were like, eh, it, it could it could tilt for him. And I, I thought that was a really, those were really interesting reads. So I I, uh, I recommend those reads to everyone out there that, that hasn't yet over at The Athletic. I think it's... Uh... It's just such a different situation than if it were on the other side of the ball or if Ken Dorsey were going to be calling plays for Andy Reid because mm -hmm. Andy Reid could easily just grab the sheet and start doing it himself again. You know, same with that, something that Sean McDermott has done to Leslie Frazier, who is an experienced play caller. So um, I do 
you know, the presence of Joe Brady is interesting in that regard because I don't think that it will be a quick pull, but if things really weren't going well, there is somebody who has done it before and Sean McDermott doesn't need to grab the sheet himself. Ken Dorsey has also, while not having experience calling plays in that seat, he did play in the NFL and, you know, he's not totally unfamiliar with the the dynamic and the process of calling plays and the flow of a game as a quarterback and, you know, being involved. But you are picking the play, right? You are the one that is decide. You're not sitting next to Brian Dable while he picks one. You're picking one. Mm-hmm. And I think what may end up happening, and, you know, I, I will bring up the New England example again. I, you know, I won't. I won't do this forever. Don't worry, everybody. I won't be uh, bringing up. It won't become the new. Uh, well, it's an Blaine it's an, Gabbert, well, but it's there. It's an app comparison for where are, they are now. Yeah, it's a it's a one for one right now because mm-hmm. they were doing it, and you know they're in the process of doing it. And what makes me think? So Bill Belichick was giving you know a little bit of you know play calling duties to different people in the spring, which makes me think he feels like there is an element of it that you can simulate in a, and of course in a real game with 70,000 fans and all of that, Ken Dorsey's got to decide, is he going to be in the booth? Is he going to be on the sidelines? You know, the whole thing. But if the greatest coach of all time thinks that there's an element of it that you can simulate, that you can almost have a competition in some regards with this, that makes me think that, the spring and the summer and the preseason will provide a little bit of that type of training ground for Ken Dorsey so that because he and Josh Allen need to find the right balance with this because I think Josh Allen is to the point now where he can call some of it, where he can have a say in the script at the beginning of a game. He's going to have a big say in that, I would imagine. As the course of a game is going, if they get into a no-huddle situation, Josh Allen knows what he's comfortable with. He knows what his receivers are comfortable with. He can do some of that. And so that is a huge advantage compared to even what Brian Dable had in 2018 with all his experience calling plays and everything else with a brand-new rookie quarterback who you're trying to develop parts of his game you have to hold his hand in a lot more ways than Ken Dorsey is going to have to. But it's a, it's the next stage. It is really a, a zoomed-in look at what a lot of people, I think, in the organization are dealing with, which is how you handle that transition from, all right, not only have we shown people that we are one of the best teams in the NFL, that our quarterback is one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, but teams are noticing that to the point where they're hiring away our people. And Brandon Bean has to figure out how his front office looks without Joe Shane, right? Like that's probably a bigger deal than, you know, people realize, but he's prepared for the eventuality by hiring certain people and backfilling those jobs and training people for those jobs. But Everybody has to figure out what it looks like without that added layer of, you know, protection of being able to turn to like Brian Dable felt like the head coach of the offense most of the time, other than when Sean McDermott would push back a little bit. But it always felt like Brian Dable, probably because of the scars he had developed over the course of his career, the failures that he had had in previous spots. He knew that if he was going down, he he had to go down his way mm-hmm. to the extent, of course, the head coach is the head coach, and there's going to be calls that he gets to make. But he felt comfortable to that point where he could say, we're still going to be a pass-heavy team. Or we have this quarterback that we've developed and who has blossomed, and we're going to use him. And, you know, Without, I mean, look, did they run the ball better toward the end of the season? Yes. But let's face it, the reason they were 
in that game against the Chiefs was because of Josh Allen and uh, and the offense. And the reason that, I mean, he was carrying them. Um, the reason they blew the doors off the Patriots, I think, had a lot to do with the the offense. The Patriots defense had zero answer for what they were doing, really, in the last two games against them. Uh, certainly, you know, Buffalo's defense handled Mac Jones fine, uh, but the story of the of the Bills playoff run and the reason why they're Super Bowl favorites and the reason why people are expecting huge things is a lot to has a lot to do with the offense. It's a complete roster, there's no doubt about that, maybe the most complete roster in football, and the defense was among the best in the league last season, could be again this season have, has all the talent with the addition of Von Miller, but how far this team goes, I think, will will depend on the offense and how much of that identity stays the same. The reason I think Sean McDermott will let it stay mostly the same is because of the way he hired Ken Dorsey. The way they've spoken about all of this leads me to believe that's what they're trying to do. Keep it as much the same as possible and not mess with it too much. The pro, you know, the the question becomes if things aren't, if you hit one of those midseason lulls, or there are some frustrating moments, and the pressure, the pressure that they're dealing with this season is unlike any they've dealt with. It's just getting more and more intense. Last year was more intense pressure than the year before, which was more intense than the year before, and it will continue to be that way, really, until they, you know, reach that ultimate goal. And even then, it almost goes up from there. At least you have the Super Bowl, and I think that relieves some pressure. But they are now in that position where they are going to be the hunted all the time. And the the standard has been set very high. The bar has been set very high so that people are expecting big things from this team now and for the foreseeable future, um, you know, with the quarterback play that they're getting. So... It creates a, an interesting dynamic. You don't have that built-in fail-safe of the head coach being able to take over offensive play calls. So these guys really do have to figure it out. Probably that trio of Ken Dorsey, Josh Allen, and Joe Brady will have to figure out what the right uh, what the right buttons to press are. Some of that will happen during the week, and then a lot of it will be on Dorsey's plate on Sundays or Mondays or Thursdays in the case of uh, the season opener to figure out, you know, what the right rhythm is to, to keep the offense clicking. And it's just not a, it's not something anybody I feel like can relate to in their job. Like mm-hmm. what Ken Dorsey has to do call mm-hmm. plays. It's a, sure. it's a weird, tough thing. It's why, you know, these things that get second guessed or nitpicked of play calls here and there, things are happening fast. You've got that sheet is big. There's a lot to pick from and, uh, it's easier when you have Josh Allen, but it's still still a challenge. Yeah, the the experience to know how to get through those lulls is uh, a requirement of the job that Dorsey just doesn't know right now because he's never had to develop a counterpunch um, and doesn't have that experience to to uh, lean on in in those instances. And it's just going to be a lot of figuring it out as you go and one one element that they are absolutely going to miss with Brian Dable in, in this coming season is how adept he was at identifying the weakness of the opponent and implementing a an offensive scheme to try and punish that it didn't always work and sometimes he had to he had to go away from it but when he found a matchup that he absolutely loved, then they were going to do it again and again and again and again until the op- opponents could um, could show and prove to them that they could stop it. So these are all things that, like, how good is Dorsey at finding these um, deficiencies within a, a defense? Um, how can he translate that to his play calls on the field in, in scheme and... And all of these other things that you that are go so deeper than just like you pointed out, just calling a play from from one play to the next. 
So it's it's going to be a there's going to be a legit learning curve there. And you know, diving back into the McDermott side of it, he to me is the most interesting piece to the Dorsey equation because of what you alluded to. How much is Sean going to influence what what goes on on offense? And it's not necessarily a bad thing because he is a defensive coach and a lot of times a defensive coaches who who is in a head coach role a lot of times what what they'll look at as like okay why don't we do a little bit of this on offense is usually what their defensive schemes have difficulties in stopping and i think there's a lot of evidence to mcdermott having these kind of thoughts when it comes to how they've kind of reshaped things um, throughout the offense, just like little micro changes, not crazy changes where they're going to be a run first offense, all of this stuff. But a lot, a lot of micro changes like Bobby Johnson moving on. He, he ended up going to the giants more of a, a power based offensive line blocking scheme is, is what he favored uh, above all else. Now, they, they were multiple. They did it a little bit of everything. Some, some zone concepts, some pin and pull concepts, but you know, mostly they scouted and coached for, for power. And we saw that with the additions of John Feliciano, um, Cody Ford, uh, Daryl Williams, all these other guys. And, and those guys came in off seasons after, or, or were invested in, um, after they had brought Bobby Johnson around. Now, on the flip side, they bring in Aaron Cromer to replace him, who his most recent stop was with the LA Rams, and he was very uh, in tune with the zone blocking scheme and outside zone and and you know highlighting more athletic offensive linemen. And that is a... a notable switch that we've seen in how they've they've tried to address the offensive line throughout the offseason like you look at what they've added uh, over the last you know or, or over the this offseason you know Roger Saffold is a, is a more athletic guard than than what Daryl Williams was last year they invested in Ryan Bates who is a a definite athlete um for and and a good fit for their the zone blocking scheme if they choose to do it that way uh, Spencer Brown obviously is is a is a good fit from an athletic profile standpoint. Same thing with Tommy Doyle. David Quesenberry is is another one who who fits that quite well. So basically, from from left to right, what they're going to have with their starting lineup is is a much more athletic offensive line to help them maybe run these sort of things. And Sean has Sean McDermott has always kind of uh, I guess really pushed the fact that needing the threat to run. And he was right uh, down the stretch late in the year where once they started to run the ball a bit better, it kind of opened things up for the passing offense. But there's also the micro moves of maybe leaning into more 12 personnel with two tight ends. They they went out and signed OJ Howard when they still had Dawson Knox. Um, and last year they were content to basically only dress one tight end because, uh, you know, by the end of the year, Tommy Sweeney wasn't active and they were putting in a sixth offensive lineman and Tommy Doyle. And before that even started, they weren't playing Tommy Sweeney at all, even when he was active and Dawson Knox was getting basically 90 to a hundred percent of the snaps based on how often that, that uh, they kept the tight end on the field. I wonder if there's, there's a little micro change with that uh, about, um, you know, mixing in more 12 personnel taking a third receiver off the field more often that, than we've seen and kind of molding it that way. And how much, if we do end up seeing that, because they invested in that, how much we end up seeing that become a staple of the offense and how much of that was was uh, kind of influenced by McDermott on Dorsey because Dorsey, as, as you kind of uh, pointed out, like Dable knew, like, all right, he was going to do it his way. But does Dorsey, because he's in a first-time role, is he going to have that uh, have that same, I guess, veto power on on a lot of different things? So there's just a lot of different side, uh, 
conversations about it that kind of drift back to McDermott and how involved he'll be. You know, I, I asked him early in the offseason workouts uh, what his vision for the offense would be. He didn't really give an answer to that. And, you know, then you know, asked if if he wanted to, you know, get a little bit more involved. And he, he's held held firm that he has been involved in it. But I think there's it's just a different connotation, possibly, um, with a first-time guy as opposed to what they had with Brian Dable and how those parties are going to work together especially if things don't start like great um, and and they go through some struggles early on in the season in such a pressure packed season. It's, it's a legitimate conversation that I think we're going to continue to have as the season kind of wears on. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily with 24 seven us based live customer service from discover Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Yeah, point that you mentioned that I had thought about but thought maybe wasn't the biggest piece of this until you brought it up is you know what happens during the week because you would think Ken Dorsey Joe Brady Josh Allen even Sean McDermott there's enough minds there to replicate some of the game plans that worked well for them and you know figure out those things but I do think Brian Dable's process and his creativity during the week probably had a lot to do with what people saw on Sundays and how easy the offense made it look at times. And that maybe isn't a foregone conclusion that they'll be able to replicate that in the same way that maybe, I mean, if it just took sitting with Brian Dable while he puts together a game plan, you know, that would be, you know, pretty easy to replace him, but obviously that's not the case. And I think his ability to spot things and, identify weaknesses in opponents and the confidence to implement it. I think the confidence piece of this trickles down from the top and it trickles into play calling and how much conviction Ken Dorsey will have to get things in quickly so that Josh Allen can get to the line and look at the defense and make adjustments if he wants to. It's confidence in Ken Dorsey to mold the offense and his vision and not let pressure, whether it's, you know, vocal or just understood from Sean McDermott to influence how he's behaving and also the conviction during the week to say, you know what, this doesn't look right to me on their defense and we're going to go after it. And I think about, again, I'll bring it, you know, that game against the Patriots at the end of the year when they just fed Isaiah McKenzie Mm -hmm. and that was, that was very Brian Dable, you know, and, I had even during the week asked Belichick about Isaiah McKenzie thinking, you know, they had some injuries and COVID situation at receiver that was going to put McKenzie into the, the limelight a little bit, but also knowing, okay, you know, Jonathan Jones has been out and Miles Bryant has looked good at times, but how much of that is the Patriots and Bill Belichick being able to scheme and hide him in some spots and Brian Dable having as much familiarity as he did with New England and the way they do things and being able to anticipate their next moves and figuring out what they're doing scheme-wise to cover something up, he's got a different eye for things, I think, than Mm -hmm. a lot of people in the league. And I think it's going to be as interesting to see how how the Bills move on from Dable as it will be to see how Dable moves on from the Bills. You know, how much that part of his, you know, brain can translate when the talent isn't there uh, on the Giants roster like it was in Buffalo and when he has other responsibilities as a head coach that he didn't have in Buffalo. But the Bills also have to find a way to bottle up some of that, that magic because for his flaws, which he had, Dable was sharp uh, as a game planner. And you know, had his 
was willing to adjust the offense to what they were faced with from a matchup standpoint. And that takes a certain confidence and a certain, uh, you know, you know, conviction to be able to say, yeah, Isaiah McKenzie is going to be the focal point today, you know, and, Mm -hmm. uh, or we're going to have, I don't think they're going to see these runs coming from Josh Allen because this certain defense hasn't defended this well, or there's a linebacker over there that we can go after may seem like easy stuff to identify, but it's just, there's a reason these guys get paid what they do and why they're in the positions that they are and why their offenses operate at the level that they do. And it's because the best ones figure that stuff out and they have the flexibility and certainly it helped that the bills have the talent, um, you know, that allowed Brian Dable a lot of options when he did want to adjust things, but yeah, it makes, it's an added layer to the job that, that Dorsey has to get used to running that process. Mm Mm-hmm for everybody else in the room because he can turn to some other guys that have experience in the room, but it's, it's Dorsey's call. It's Dorsey's reputation on the line and Dorsey's the one uh, who ultimately will be held accountable for how the offense performs. So that's a, a part of this that I think will, will be, you know, we won't see it right. You know, nobody's going to see how that unfolds, but where you may be blaming Ken Dorsey for a bad play call if something's going wrong. It may be something that happened on Wednesday or Thursday or Monday or Tuesday when they were figuring things out that led to not having the right things in the game plan or not having the right things at their disposal, not having the right answers. Um, Certainly a, a part of the challenge that since we don't see it, sometimes gets overlooked. Yeah, and and then there's also the personnel side of it, and then the interperson personal side to the personnel side of things. Because last year, I mean, that Patriots game is a great example of this. Because you know it, it became known as the Isaiah McKenzie game because they they spotted um, a deficiency in the Patriots defense. They saw um, they saw them in man to man trying to trying to take or uh, trying to defend the bills and then you know the the bills just absolutely roasted them with isaiah mckenzie on a crosser on, on multiple different plays but that takes gumption to make that call because not only are you putting isaiah mckenzie into a a really big situation in a need to have game to win that division but you're also doing it like in other games because that's not like McKenzie was kind of forced into the role because because Beasley was out in the game due to COVID. But there were other games where Dable would have to be able to sell to his his offensive skill players like, all right, we're not going to have you in a, a ton this week. And some of the some of these guys are really vocal. Like Cole Beasley is. <laughs> really damn vocal and his role got scaled back a lot last season and to have the um confidence to be able to execute that and not feel the pressure from those players too it's just there's so many layers that we don't think about to being in this prime position as the coordinator of the entire offense as the play caller all of these little micro decisions that you have to make in the course of a week, what you, uh, what, how much time you spend on X, how much time you decide to spend on Y, um, how much time that each individual player should get in a game and how much of that is feel-based and, and how have you developed that feel? Like there are just so many, so many things you have to think about in that position and then having Super Bowl expectations with an MVP caliber quarterback on top of it, and then maybe not having to do it all the same way because you don't want that MVP caliber quarterback to get crushed and injured by running him too much, which the Bills did a lot of last year. He had a career high in in rush attempts last season. So, so much stuff to think about and to still keep afloat with the pressure that goes along with it. That's 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 a tall task this uh, this year for Ken Dorsey and the Bills. And I will be fascinated to see how it unfolds and how 
what McDermott's response is if things don't just go like gangbusters throughout throughout the entire season. Um, that that will be one of the biggest storylines of the year. That it really isn't getting a ton of a ton of attention outside of maybe the show because we're devoting 45 minutes to it. But uh, I think I think it's one that will become a talking point if the offense doesn't really jump out to to a fresh start. Yeah, some guys take to the the job naturally. Absolutely. You know? yeah. And you know that that's a uh, also within the realm of possibility here. And yeah, for sure. Ken Dorsey is the type of guy that could certainly do that and he the players is in love a position. Him, by the, way. the players absolutely love him. Yeah, he's he's at least been around mm-hmm. the team. So he's, you know, in addition to being familiar with, you know, as a former quarterback, being familiar with the process and everything else and being around Josh Allen, he's really familiar with the entire roster. And he he can think about the game in that way. But, yeah, he could very well take to it quickly. I think it's a matter of even if he takes to it quickly and even if, you know, if they do hit those tough moments, what that starts to look like, having that answer, having that that counter to what other teams are trying to do. I do think he has the baked in benefit of not just Josh Allen, but some some easy answers as a play caller. You know, some you can keep it simple and still beat a lot of teams because you have more talent and you have you know, guys that can win. You don't need to to scheme things up too elaborately to have Stephon Diggs, you know, have a good game. You know, you can feed that guy and, you know, have things go pretty well. But, yeah, how it evolves from week one to week 18 into the postseason, I think will be part of what defines this team and defines – Sean McDermott, you know, in some ways in this stage of his head coaching career and how he handles the ebbs and flows that are are bound to come with any play caller, not just a first-time play caller, because we saw last year that they had to handle some of that internal, you know, back and forth over what the offense was looking like. And, you know, now it's doing that with a a different – different guy in charge and a guy who, you know, I think just the big thing for him is finding out who he is and being confident in that. And the big thing for Sean McDermott is giving him the space to become that person and become that play caller and that coordinator before you, you know, get too quick to put pressure. Uh, And, I know that that won't be an easy balance because the external pressure on the team as a whole, but there is an element too when you get to this point as a team. The NFL regular season is, you know, part of what makes the NFL as popular as it is, is the NFL regular season feels so important week to week. And it it is important because of how, you know, there's just not a lot of games. But this feels like a team that will be building itself up for the playoffs. That that is what is really going to matter. Certainly having that top seed helps and will be the goal. It's not to say they're going to sandbag it for the whole year and you know let this thing go off the rails while they figure things out and just sneak in as a wild card. But I do think you can... You don't have to feel that pressure from the very second you take the field. You don't have to panic if the offense isn't putting up 35 points a game, if you don't start the season 5-0. and There doesn't have to be a sense of panic if you only win 11 games because what really is going to matter is what happens when they're in the postseason. And the rest of the division doesn't look super threatening at the moment. And we even saw last year they hit some tough stretches and 
you know, fell behind in the division and it still wasn't a huge problem. So I think that's going to be something that McDermott has to keep in mind and manage is saying, all right, you know, if this isn't perfect at times, what really matters is that it is that Ken Dorsey knows what he's doing in January, that he's confident in who he is and what he wants the offense to look like at that time of year, because that's when the rubber meets the road and that's what they'll be judged on. And so not an easy dynamic to navigate, but I think they have a lot of the elements in place to have success with it. As long as, you know, everybody involved manages uh, the different dynamics at play. Yeah. Excellent point. Um, And by the way, don't think I didn't notice that earlier in the episode, you just restarted the freaking Blaine Gabbert streak, um, which try, snuck it in there. You did. It was it was impressive, and now we're going to be listening for it. Uh, just, I, I don't I'm, know if you were tagged in some of those tweets. Uh, oh, I was. <laughs> uh, is it Taylor Lewan that has that podcast? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, and then, uh, uh, oh, it's another player. I can't remember who he is. Um, the linebacker will comp yeah that's it. Um, right. yeah and they were talking just watch daddy sling it uh <laughs> you know was what 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 blaine used to say when he would go in there before he would throw a pick six i feel like blaine gabbert has become sort of this this cult hero he's like the guy people turn to i saw a poll circulating the other day that people tagged me and would you rather have blaine gabbert's career or lamar jackson's career where lamar has been an MVP, but Blaine Gabbert's got a ring, but he's been a backup. I feel like he has become this generation's like guy that you point to as the backup quarterback, right? He has been uh, – he's a guy that people think about in that way. Like, man, what a life he's living. Kind of not unlike Chase Daniel. Yeah, uh, fair. Also a Mizzou guy. I was going to say. Where people were like, wow, look at this guy. The difference being that Gabbert had a – career as a starter uh and the pedigree of a first round pick and repeated failures before uh settling into this nice job as as a backup but yeah uh he has he has really developed a a bit of a groundswell of of internet support and i'm i'm really happy about it i i the first thing i thought of when i saw that quote is like we'll be in a backyard somewhere in the not so distant future playing a lawn game and you just you, you look over at me right right as your turn is about to go and, and you go just watch daddy sling it i i can see it with a clear vision I, I i know i know it to be true in my heart that matthew fairburn will 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 do this at least once to me this summer or in future summers and you know if we know anything about Blaine Gabbert, he's not going to stop saying that just because uh, it's now out there. He'll probably say it even more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to have a certain certain level of confidence to to say just watch Daddy sling it. To, to say that, <laughs> given the career he has had, you know, and it's not to as if throw he was a saying pick. that. You know, it's it's pretty epic. I've I've also seen a few people suggest that that needs to be a new award on the podcast the watch daddy sling it award yeah uh which i'm not out which we'll have to workshop that and figure out where it might fit in but i've got, uh, I've got some ideas really um, glad that that story made it out into the into the the public that was a a, a strong one <laughs> uh before uh before we get out of here on this episode we're taping this on uh thursday june 23rd and we're still a few weeks away from the NHL offseason kicking into gear, obviously, um, you know, Stanley Cup finals were still this week, um, but the draft is the next big thing, and it's going to be the first draft you're covering. The Sabres have a lot of picks, uh, especially in the first round. What are you kind of looking at this year in terms of, or in this draft that um, that you're you know, kind of keeping a close eye on that, that has kind of crystallized to you as you've been getting more acclimated with the team coming up here. Yeah. Three first round picks is a big deal. Actually hold that thought because my computer 
is now showing me a black screen. So hold on. Hopefully I did not lose what we just did. Did we just have a just watch daddy sling it moment from your computer? Es essentially, yes. Uh, <laughs> we might as well just let, let this roll here so people can feel the, battery the anxiety. Is, the battery is actually fine. Um, uh, and maybe it just went to screensaver. Just went to screensaver mode. We're good. Yeah, this is this computer's getting a little old, so uh, <laughs> it's starting to do things like this. But <laughs> but yeah, anyways, three first round picks is a is a lot to deal with, uh, at, and there are a lot of dynamics at play. I feel like uh, in hockey, although I, I guess it would be the same in football if you had three first round picks, where it affords you a lot of flexibility that other teams don't have, where you can trade those picks. You can, uh, you know, probably take a little bit of risk, probably more so in hockey maybe than you would in football when you have three first-round picks where you take a shot on a, on a prospect that's falling. Or in hockey, an interesting element is all these Russian prospects where people don't know how quickly they'll be able to get over mm -hmm. to North America, and they might fall as a result. And that might be a spot where the Sabres can take advantage. I do expect them to be more patient than they were with this, re you know, more patient with this rebuild than they were under Tim Murray when they, the last time they had three first round picks, turned those into Jack Eichel, Evander Kane, and Robin Lehner, and then also took a high second round pick and packaged it as part of the Ryan O'Reilly trade and really tried to you know, skip a few steps in that rebuild. I don't think they'll be quite as eager to do that this time around. Mm -hmm. And I also don't think that even with all their cap space, they'll sit there and throw a bunch of money around and try to fix this whole thing in free agency because it doesn't happen all that often in hockey where that pays off unless your team is built already and you can you know, kind of supplement some, you know, some weaknesses by spending some cash. So I maybe it will be an eventful off season one way or another, but maybe not in the manner people think. And we'll see who knows, maybe they'll, they have a surprise up their sleeve, but even with all their cap space, they do have future contracts to worry about and planning to navigate. So you can't spend it all and then be sitting there in two years and be like, well, now we, we got to let, you know, we can't afford to pay Tage Thompson or Rasmus Dahlin or, you know, the guys that you're trying to develop because you watch the Stanley Cup and you see teams that had, you know, a ton of talent coming through their system and maybe filled some holes, you know, here and there with veterans. But I think trades are a more realistic way to do that than overpaying in free agency. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, we did. We did a beat writer mock draft uh, this week, and I had three. I, ha I had a heavy lift. Uh, three first round picks uh, getting thrown right into the mix. So, um, that did they allow for trades? Week. They did end up allowing for trades. About halfway through, somebody started slinging some trades around, but I kept all the picks, made all the picks, and. Um, and went about things in a responsible manner. So uh, whether I pick the right players, who knows. But uh, it's going to be an interesting interesting weekend that rolls right into free agency. It's interesting how you know the NHL's calendar is a little bit different than the NFL's where the draft happens and then they roll right into free agency and sort of knock it out all at once. And the draft is before free agency as opposed to uh, the way it works in football. So... Uh, lots of new things to get used to, but I'm interested to see how, how it plays out for, for Kevin Adams here as he, he enters sort of that phase of, of the build that the Bills were in you know, three or four years ago. Yeah, that, that's a perfect segue because as you were, as you were putting that, um, that whole thing about what they're facing, what they might do in free agency and, and how they might have to pay their own uh, pretty soon here, I just immediately flash back to 2018. And, and what the Bills were going through at that point and where they were and having the um, the presence of mind to not try and shortcut it as opposed to doing it the way with this vision that um, 
that Bean had in mind, which ended up being the right one, uh, you know, finding, of course, roster building in football quite a bit different than than in hockey because not it's not solely built around just finding that one position where you're like, if you have this, you're going to be great for a long time. It's, it's a lot more, um, not to say that football roster building is easier. It's just different um, it, with, with all the different challenges that building a hockey team involves. And I've always been fascinated by the scheduling of it. And I'm fairly certain the majority of NFL GMs would love for the offseason setup that like the NHL and the NBA has where uh, the draft is ahead of free agency. So you can just feel content with drafting the best player available and then filling your free agent needs after the fact. But uh, that's not how football is set up. And the and really seeing the draft happen and it almost being like a like a temporary trade window closing. Like it's not, but it also is as soon as the draft is done um, where they, where you're just, okay, if you don't get it done, that's the deadline. And then, and then you kind of go, go about things uh, and go dive headfirst into free agency. So those, those are things that are always, um, you know, to me, hockey off season, uh, you know, not being a, a huge hockey guy growing up, the off-season part of it is something that has always interested me and and how and how teams wind up playing it. I think part of it is that the hockey draft isn't expected to have instant impact in the right. same way sure. either. And so outside of a handful of guys, you know, you're not really looking at your current roster and saying, you know, Sabres are a good example. They need a goalie really bad, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they don't have one under contract. They're not going to use their first-round pick on a goalie and say, all right, get in there, you know, Mm -hmm. at 18 years old. You know, you're more so looking at your organizational needs. You know, they have a couple goalies in the pipeline, and, you know, they're going to, you know, actually from a prospect standpoint, look okay at goalie. It's more so signing a veteran and – free agency and making sure they have somebody uh, to, you know, pair up with, with uh, UPL there. So it's a little different in that way. Probably basketball, you know, is the in-between of football and hockey where, you know, the, a lot of guys do make instant impact, but there is a a long-term nature uh, to those players as well. It's different in hockey when you're, I mean, the guys are all 18 Mm -hmm. and, not necessarily most of them anyway aren't expected to contribute immediately so but it it's part of the nfl machine too right dragging that off season out oh yeah you got oh yeah you know it, it never ends really you've got you know the combine to free agency to the draft um owners meetings are in between there and then otas and the whole thing and people are talking about football 12 months a year as a result and you know, in hockey, they kind of, they do the sensible thing for the people involved and mm-hmm. knock it all out at once uh, and take a, a legitimate offseason, probably because they're playing so many games. And, you know, that can, especially for the teams that go deep into the playoffs, um, you know, they, they need a, a bit of a breather. Yeah, no doubt. Um, all right. Uh, so the draft is, what, July 7th? Yeah, whatever that Thursday is. Yeah. So, yeah, the 7th. And then free agency, quick tight turn, basically the, the very next week. So be sure to uh, check out all of uh, Mr. Fairburn's coverage of the Sabres and their quest to build their roster up and maybe even taking a page out of what uh, Brandon Bean and the Bills have done in, in a different, in a hockey lens, but, you know, some some uh, roster building theory. I think there there's a little bit of carryover from the way that you 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 seem to think it'll go this year and um, with how the bills did it uh, about three, four years ago. All right. So I think that'll, that'll do it for this episode of the Buffalo beat. If you haven't yet head over to theathletic.com and check out our annual bills fan survey. I put together uh, 25 questions. Um, Most are pretty pressing and you'll, you'll be, it'll make you think a little bit like, huh, what what uh, what should I answer for this one? Um, some of them are, you know, 
I think are easier than others, but it's getting a good gauge on where the fan is right now at this point of the offseason leading up to training camp, expectations, um, young players and their impact, uh, stats, confidence level in, in the coaching staff, um, what they should do in terms of re-signing players that are entering their final year of their deal. That's all included. So be sure to head over to theathletic.com and uh, and find it right there so you can participate because I want as many votes as possible. And I'm seeing some early results and some of them are very, very interesting. So uh, be sure to participate in that if you haven't yet. All right. Uh, Matthew Fairburn, fond words of farewell. What do you got for me? I've got nothing. Okay. I, I left it all out there on the field today. So uh, nothing left. Just watch Daddy Sling is what we need to take away from this episode. All right. So for Matthew Fairburn, my name is Joe Biscaglia. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode. And we will talk to you next time. See you then.